Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Story Smack. Hello, my name is A. Kovacs, audiobook narrator and founding partner at Empty Set Entertainment. And my name is Scott Sigler, best-selling author and, hey, what's the deal with lubricants? It's got the word can't right in it, but when you use it, you get things done. Maybe they should call it lubrican. Oh my. That's my Seinfeld joke. uh, I wrote that. Well, I can tell. (laughs) (laughs) This is episode 27 of Story Smack, a podcast about stories and storytellers in the world of pop culture. Maybe you recognize Scott's impression of Jerry Seinfeld. When it comes to pop culture, few people had as big of an impact on it as Seinfeld did, and he is one of the premier storytellers of the 90s. Even though his stories were about nothing. Yeah. And in this episode, we're actually not covering his seminal series, Uh but rather the new Netflix special, Jerry Before Seinfeld, where he mixes his old stand-up with his story about coming up as a struggling comedian in New York City. I loved loved the special. Totally caught me off guard. I thought, oh, this would be a fun stand-up, and it was absolutely charming and amazing. Yeah, I totally agree. It was really, really lovely. I think the, um, you know, it's nice because... You never, you know, there's there's always that warning that you should never meet your heroes. And who knows what he's like in person, uh-huh. obviously. But this peek behind the curtain where you forget that Seinfeld literally was struggling to make it, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. just like everybody else. And this is kind of neat because he's a lifelong New Yorker. And yeah. a lot of the narration and the um, overarching story of Jerry before Seinfeld uh, is takes place. He he in the modern day currently is sitting like sitting where he ate lunch when he was doing construction when he was was 23 and like the corner 57th or something. And that was pretty cool, I think. And this special seems really well-timed in the, uh, in the gestalt of our culture because in this politically hyperware environment where everything means something and everything is so very important or so very evil or so, you know, all these horrible things or it's the end of the country and this and that, this special brought back to me the the harmless sitcom fun of Jerry and his observational humor. The biggest thing, one of the lines from the show that I caught was when he, his friends were ripping on him for, for doing a laundry service because it's expensive. He goes, I know, but folded shirts are a delight. Folded pants are a delight. I seek delight in my life. And it, this this episode was delightful. This show yeah. was delightful. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. Your Seinfeld impression <laughs> is is... Leave something to be desired. It's, However, it sounds like a very good character voice for you. It's the the impression of the guys doing an impression of Jerry when Jerry hosted Saturday Night Live. Yes, it is. Yes. Now that's a pretty spot on. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But I mean, I, I, I can't really talk any smack because I'm not great with accents at all. So this is sort of circling the Seinfeld yeah. accent and that's better than I could do for sure. But yeah, no, I agree with you. There's there That is one of the most charming parts of this. But Jerry has always been... Um, that's why the show is about nothing. And that's mm-hmm. why Jerry Seinfeld is a stand-up. He's sort of always been non-confrontational. Yes. And he's this nebbish Jewish New Yorker. And that, that, um, that when you go up on the stage and that's your, your MO, it's kind of nice to see him sort of talking about silly little things. Um, yeah. 
and and the this was such a cool up or special because as personally as a creator who was once a starving artist, you know, I was writing and writing and writing for no one as I got better and developed my craft, I really identified with this because today uh, fortune estimates that Jerry's worth $670 million, mm-hmm. million dollars. But when he started out, which is what the special covering covers, he was doing stand up just for the joy of it. And that to me was the key word about this special. It's just, it's full of joy. Yeah. And I think that's why the name of this special even is clever before Seinfeld became a household name as the biggest sitcom com of all time. When this guy was starting out, he was just Jerry. He was gangly and he was trying to break in at the comic strip in New mm-hmm. York City. And part of it at, during the special, he talks about like th- literally there was the improv and the comic strip and that was, that was it. it. Yeah. And he was trying to break in. And you think about it now and you see this often. Um, we, we were just recently in, in L.A. for a day and uh, on Sunset Boulevard and somebody was hawking their CDs. And you see that a lot also in Las Vegas on the strip and stuff like that. Yeah. There's so many ways to get your your creativity out there today, but you're, you don't care about all the ways you care about the way it will happen for you. Like what I can, what you can do to stand out. And that is part of your origin story too. Like yes. I, I, you made the Amazon, you run at Amazon before the, before Amazon grew up. Right. And in talking about print books and, uh, and that changed the game for you. And for him, it was just being showing up, being consistent, but those were the only two games in town. There wasn't the option yeah. to release a podcast. There wasn't, mm-hmm. there was none of that. There were just these two places and he had to drive in from the, or take the train in from Long Island and get that done. And now $670 million later. But it's also, he, that is also, he was in the right place at the right time with the right product. Cause if he had shown up to New York 10 years earlier, comic strip didn't exist. If he's shown up 10 years later, comic strip is, is packed and maybe he doesn't get as much stage time and time to perform his craft. Ma'am, I actually looked up some things you might not know about the comic strip, which I would like to get to early. Okay. I'm going to say that there are things that, there are many, 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 many things that many of us don't know about the comic strip in New York City. This is very well timed. So some things you might not know. Number one, it was founded in 1975. It is the longest running showcase comedy club in the world. So they are, I guess, kind of one of the um, inventors or founders of the stand-up club. You know, it just wasn't a big thing before. This place launched the careers of Eddie Murphy, Chris Rock, Adam Sandler, and of course, Jerry Seinfeld. And do you remember Colin Quinn from Remote Control of MTV? Sure. Colin Quinn was a bartender there, was working there to also get stage time. And uh, this made me love Chris Rock even more. Chris Rock used to clean tables to get extra stage time. And in the... um in the special, in the Seinfeld special that we're talking about, there there's like a little montage about what it meant to be the comic strip in yep. 1975. And there was also um, a picture of Joan Rivers on stage. Oh, yeah. And just remarkably, you know, in 1975, she was young and pre-surgery and still maybe even still a house mom and housewife. I'm not really sure. But okay. it was kind of amazing because I was like, who is that? She looks so wow, familiar. Yeah. Oh my goodness, that's Joan Rivers. It was great. And uh, Jerry became a regular very early in 1976. So either in the first 12 months or shortly after this place was even open, he wound up becoming a regular there. And he was 22 years old at the time. Yeah. And he, according to this special, and, and it's him telling his story, which is yes. really nice too. He's uh, He grew up... Uh, in Massapequa, which is on Long Island. And he tells this part of the story standing in front of his childhood home, which I find fantastic. It was awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
And that's where he grew up with his folks and his sister. And then he moved to Manhattan to pursue his his dream of being a stand-up while mm-hmm. working construction during the day, which is one of the funniest things about it. Like <laughs> that guy, like that nevishy guy doesn't seem like the hard hat safety vest kind of guy but sure enough he of course you do what you do and you get and he said he made like 15 bucks a week or a day or something like that and um and uh he lived in a 15 by 15 15 foot by 15 foot apartment uh i saw that and i'm like okay that is New Yorker bullshit, right? Is yeah. that normal? 15 by 15? You know, I don't know about normal, but one of the things about uh, n- n- oh, New York for, has... for those of you listening who don't know, A grew up in Manhattan, so yeah, knows uh, all about this stuff. The, the, one of the things about the rent control in New York is you, if you move out, if you change leases, they can raise the rent, but you can subdivide a place and, oh. and not, not necessarily have your rent. So people did do that, and then... And then when they eventually do move out and the landlords can raise, they're like, oh, well, this is three apartments now, apparently, <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, but I will say my um, my high school sweetheart, David, his first apartment in New York was 11 feet by 26 feet, I think wow. it is. Uh, yeah, and it was kind of a, a not terribly big rectangle. And there was one corner had like a um, a kitchen sort of in uh-huh. one corner. And then one corner had like a little cutout into the room that was the world's tiniest bathroom. Um, but, and that was within the footprint of the 11 by 26. Jeez, oh, Pete. Yeah. And he loved it. (laughs) That's great. Well, that's what you gotta do if you want to move to New York, I guess. So Jerry is in Manhattan. He's working at the comic strip and according to the the special, he's making absolutely nothing. But the way he describes it at the time, he is beside himself with joy because because he has to do this. This is the thing that he has to do is yeah. to do the stand up. He has to do his creative thing. And, and those creative types, we all have our creative thing that we have to do. Uh, in the special, he said that if he could make enough money to buy one loaf of bread a week, that would keep him from starving and he would be happy because that would be enough money for him to keep doing yeah. stand up. And you hear this over and over again in a generalized way. You hear it about LA as well. Uh, you know, you're going to go to the big city and become a star and mm-hmm. you're going to wait tables and live in an apartment with 15 other people and all that stuff. And right. you forget sometimes that when you hear that origin story, uh, that that's really true. People really do that. And it's hard and it is soul crushing. And it's, it's, you only ever hear it in those stories, uh, you mostly hear from people like Jerry who yeah. have obviously made it big. Well, then they have a voice and a platform and people want to know where they came from. So they tell that story. Exactly. But, but there are literally thousands and thousands right. of people who wash out and go back to, you know, Cleveland or whatever and have that same experience. So I kind of love seeing Jerry do it, talk about it. And, and we didn't see his apartment, but we saw his childhood home and we saw right. where he worked and all right. that other stuff. And I love seeing that because that is a piece of a story of, thousands and thousands of people all across the U.S. Sure. who who then went back, They you know, they tried it to make it big in the big city, then their priorities changed or whatever, and that didn't happen for Jerry. He, he got famous, but so his little, that little piece of his mm-hmm. story is actually a little piece of a lot, a lot of, of people's stories, stories and I love that. You're right, I mean, in not very few people make it in any profession because not everybody gets a trophy. You don't get a cookie for trying, and a lot of people, you, power to the people who move to the place they feel they need to move to, to do their craft or completely invest themselves in their craft. And then they find out, okay, I don't, I'm not willing to work this hard for this long to see, to see if I might get it or might not get it. So yeah. they, they bail out. Other people are in it long enough to be like, 
I'm not as good at this as I thought I was. All these other people around me are much better. No mm-hmm. wonder I'm not getting callbacks. No wonder I'm not getting my book published because these people are just flat out better. So uh, I'm sure that some of the happier people in life who actually went and did the thing and tried to do the thing and found out they, they weren't cut out for the thing, that has to have some level of satisfaction in their life. They did try as opposed to, I could have been a contender, but I never fought a fight. Yeah. And there's one other piece that I think is important here. There are people who go like, I'm going to go be the next Jerry Seinfeld. And then they get there and they realize, you know what I actually love is the creation. Mm-hmm. I, I hate the execution. So they become writers. They become Larry David instead of yeah. Jerry Seinfeld yep. or something like that. And they find their bliss and they find a thing they can do forever and love it. And they find a way to release that creative, if they have that creative drive that, to release that into the world. But they don't actually do the thing that they went to the big city to do. And I think that's value adding too. I hear that a lot on one of my favorite podcasts. I really only listen to two podcasts anymore because- um, all the free time I have to listen to things is usually spent listening to books because I have very little free time to actually read. Mm-hmm. So I do audiobooks. When I do listen to podcasts between books, it's Joe Rogan and it's Script Notes. Um, Script Notes podcast by John August and Craig Mazin. And our podcast is modeled after their podcast. So that's how much I enjoy it. And a lot of their screenwriting and TV writing people who come on tell that same story. I went to LA to become an actor. I went to LA to do this. And then yeah. I got a chance, like I got a chance to help out with this thing. And I was like, wow, this, I like this a whole lot better. Or people like I can get paid to do actual work and not have to go to callback after callback. Right. So you hear that a lot. People do, if you go after the thing, sometimes something else opens up that you can wind up being very happy doing. Yeah. And nerd alert, I'll tell you a little piece of my own story here. Oh, okay. I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Art when I was in my early 20s. I auditioned. I got in. I went through the first round. Uh, you audition every semester and you have to make it through the audition to continue. And I made it through the first two and realized like, yeah, this, I just, God, this isn't for me. This And, and the problem was In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All of my fellow students were were exactly what you would think of as young, creative 20-somethings uh-huh. in, unleashed in New York City. They were up all night. They were taking 
drinking and taking drugs. They were barely making it to the call they had to make it to at like, you know, we had to, we sometimes were obligated to show up at a theater at 5 a.m. and shadow a pro or Mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. And they would barely make it still in club clothes and makeup and smelling (laughs) like booze and cigarettes. And I was just like, all of you people drive me absolutely (laughs) batty. And I sort of realized like, this is not exactly for me. I love it, but I don't love it. Like you were saying, I don't love it. Like these people love it. And I also don't love these people. Ah, yes. And that was, but I, I was able to do that, enjoy that, love that, learn how to fall down on cue in stage combat Mm -hmm. and put it down. (laughs) Which is a Sigler Fest regular. (laughs) And I think a dragon gun. I'm not sure we've ever done that. We're going to do it. Yeah. Um, but but happily, gratefully, put it down and walk away. And that was another thing that's special. Jerry talks about he loved the people he was doing this with. He mm-hmm. they, he said it was like, for him and his fellow nerdy comedians, it was their first experience f- for what it felt like to be the quarterback in high school. Because you just yeah. go do your thing, yeah. and then people come up and talk to you. So, you know, I, let's talk about when he was actually working. Okay. He, there's, he talks a little bit about there. He's the, at the... the um, comic strip every night. He's, he's working really hard. He's taking his reps when he can. Yep. He's working nonstop on his craft uh-huh. and becoming really good at what he did. As an interesting side note, he, um, he keeps a lot of his legal paperwork and that, uh, we'll talk about in a little bit, but he writes them all right there and it's charming and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then what this special, one of the, the most charming parts for me was he, he, mixes his own self-narrated history in the modern day with clips of his very early days and mm-hmm. appearances on the night tonight show with Johnny Carson. Mm-hmm. And it's him doing live standup in the place that started it all. And the jokes he's doing are some of the same jokes today when he's redoing them now that he did when he was 22 and 23 and 24, when he wasn't a star yeah, yeah. and they're still funny they're and still it's funny. gorgeous. It's luminous. And uh, <laughs> I did not know that while we were watching the standup, I thought he's writing new stuff. No, this is the same stuff he told back in the day. So let's let's talk about that. You mentioned the notes, yeah. And, uh, which was I, I. First of all, I used to save all of my rejection letters. I still have those. I used to save all of my printed manuscripts mm-hmm. and a light of notebooks. I saved everything, but now I've moved so many times. And after twenty years in the business, it's become it's just too much. I can't haul it around. I'm actually at the point now we save five copies of every book I put out, mm-hmm. and I'm starting to think we may have to drop down to two because five copies of everything. When you had the foreign editions, it's starting. We're going to need a warehouse for this crap. Yeah, good but, thing we have a warehouse. Good thing we have a warehouse. <laughs> but he he saved all of his notes from back then. Mm-hmm. And there is this amazing scene where they shut down a Manhattan street. At least it could be a soundstage. I don't know. No, it's, a, I think it, I'm almost sure it's Carmine street in the East village because okay. it's a little crooked and you can see it be crooked. Mm-hmm. I'm not a hundred percent and it totally could be a soundstage, but I'm almost sure it's in the village. And that is like this sort of a little bit of an L shaped street and it's short. Mm-hmm. And I think that might be where he was. And he's in that street. He's sitting in the middle of that street and the entire pavement, the whole thing from in front of him, curving all the way around behind him is completely covered with his illegal sized pieces of paper from all of the jokes he worked on yeah. and saved all this year. And he's sitting in the middle of this cross-legged on the, on the ground. You know, you're the biggest star in comedy in 30 years, perhaps. And you're just like, Hey, I'll just sit down. I'll just sit down here. And it's, it's so charming. And he's, talking to the camera and he's giddy about like, oh, I remember this and I remember this. And then he actually pulls out some of the jokes that he didn't remember writing and you can see him laugh, go, yeah, this still works. This yeah, could work. Yeah, this yeah, could that work. was funny then. And yeah, it still it's spectacular. works. It's true. Um, yeah. And it's that you were talking earlier about the joy yeah. that you, it's, it's so obvious, which is interesting because uh, uh, in Seinfeld in the show, 
the point of those four New Yorkers where they were very not often joyful. Um, so it's kind of charming to see that he was reminiscing about how happy he truly was doing this and mm-hmm. how um, happy it made him doing that. Yes. And speaking of the sitcom, he doesn't get into the sitcom at all. I mean, I'm not even sure. I'm not even, I could be right. I don't think he mentions the sitcom. I mean, he may, I mean, it's in the title, but yes. Jerry before Jerry or si- Jerry, Jerry, before, Jerry Seinfeld? before Seinfeld. So that, that Seinfeld is a reference to Seinfeld, that's the, the show. Right. That's a, and, and to the, the pop culture icon that yeah. was Seinfeld, but he, yeah, he, he doesn't really, he doesn't really get into that. And the point no. of the special is who he was before all of that happened and how he came up in the business. Yeah. And it's really uplifting. Like, you and I talk a lot about, um, internally at the layer of doom, um, the, one of the things that is good for empty set other than our dogs. Our do- you if you hear them. growling, our dogs are tearing <laughs> into each other, wrestling. Um, yeah. You were saying? One of the good things about empty set as a, as a small business is we're, we, we, it's just the two of us. We're equal partners mm-hmm. and you want it all. You want everything you can grab and hold on to you before you die. And I want enough. Mm-hmm. I want enough to take care of the people we love, to take care of the dogs we love, to take care of doing fun, cool things and having a happy life. And, that's a good push and pull because I would never, never go for it all. Mm-hmm. And you probably would never settle for enough. And that we have each other to work against, we get a good balance of like, yeah. yes, we are going all out on this one. Or like, yeah, no, we don't have to try and get into this new space. We're not, you know, we don't need to make whatever. Um, and the, and that's a pretty happy medium because I think going back to this Seinfeld special, Jerry is truly, I think he's happy today, or at least it seems so. Seems really happy. And uh, it's kind of a nice, uh, I don't want to say fairy tale ending because it isn't over, but um, that your dreams can come true and it will take a ton of work to get there. Yes. You have to be really willing to sacrifice. Reese, shush it. She's barking at nothing. Mm-hmm. which means she's a Seinfeld fan. Yes. There's literally yes, nothing yes. there and she's barking at it. But anyway, you have to, like I said, you have to be willing to do a ton of work, which yes. we do a ton of a ton work. Of work. Yeah. And you have to be willing to sacrifice and we sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he, t- he talks at one point about telling jokes in an empty room. Does that, is there any corollary to the, does that jibe with you, your career? And like you were saying, like you wrote for no one yes. for years. Yeah. I, I found that to be a great metaphor for creatives and it's part for authors. Most authors write for a really long time before they get published. Most, uh, most writers I know, like I've always written, I've written since I was a kid. I wrote through junior high, I wrote through high school, I wrote in college. So there's already many years of creativity. And then you make that decision. I want to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get published. And then you write for a while after that. So it takes many years, or at least it used to mm-hmm. before the Kindle. And, you know, there are great Kindle books. There are great authors who have launched massive careers through Kindle. So it's a very, it's a, it's oh, a, sure. In all formats, self-published. Yeah. yeah. There's, 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 it's, if you are a writer, that's the path to pursue right now. However, the easy, the, the no barrier to entry nature of the Kindle, if you read enough Kindle books, you will start to see that a lot of these people should have written for a while before yeah. they put a book out for sale because they're not ready yet. And I think that's a percentages thing too. Like if you look yes. at the percentage of books available on the Kindle versus the percentage, you know, like the, some of those people should be having, some of those not people, everybody needs a right. gatekeeper, gatekeeper and we don't all need them, but sometimes that's but, a good thing because they say like, this is pretty good, but it could be a lot better. The, the, the point of that being that you, you had to write for a long time to get past the gatekeepers and we mm-hmm. hated gatekeepers, won't lie, but you developed your craft and that is something that isn't necessary requirement anymore, but you mm-hmm. can see when I was coming up anyways, 
it's the, it's to me, it's this, it's the work you put in when you're nobody that makes you good enough to be somebody, right? That is really what it's all about. Musicians go through the same thing. Artists go through our friend, Amy Roth, Dave Roth goes through this. Everybody's gone through the same thing. That stuff you make early on when you figure out what you want to do isn't very good. And it takes you a while to get better at dancers for creators. There's this long gray period where you don't get paid for the thing that you want to do, but you do it because you have to do it. And then hopefully you get better at it and then you get paid for it. Right. And I, I mean, I like that. I think I might maybe say that it's the work you do for nobody mm-hmm. that makes your work worthy of somebody. That's too. one. What's one way to look at? Yeah, it. I mean, I think both work, and maybe that's an all enough, all in enough kind of. Well, you're of you're, that. you're you're you're. But ni- I'm not a you're, creative. You're nicer to the world than I am, and I'm I'm harsher in this. Like, yeah, a lot of people are going to do this, and you know what? You ain't going to make it. Lots, yeah, ton, ton yeah, of people yeah, yeah, are yeah. not going to make it. Yeah, and there are a ton of people who who are who are writers because they have pu- published a book. They've put it mm-hmm. out on Kindle or whatever mm-hmm. or, or Lulu or whatever it is now, um, create space. And and they get to call themselves writers for sure. But it depends on what your dream is. And I think quite a lot of people want a dream where that's a self sustaining thing. Yeah. Or it sustains that is their money making venture or whatever. And those things change a little bit. And that I goes think. back to our dynamic, right? Which mm-hmm. is you want enough. So the way you look at the world, we are incredibly successful sustainable small business. We're able to yeah, hire people. We're doing always great been things. Profitable. Always been, been profitable before not we were very. even. <laughs> <laughs> not always very profitable. But we were but. profitable before we even started a book, right? Because we did things differently than everybody else. Yeah. And by your benchmark, huge success. By mm-hmm. my benchmark, man, we got a long way to go. I'm like, yeah. this is good. I'm glad I can do this full time, but I got a long way to go to get to where I want to go. And that's so what I like about out. our, yeah, that's, I really like our push pull in that regard because then we're still, you are the one who came up with our, our, I think empty set catchphrase, I guess I'll call it, or mission statement maybe, which is we make cool stuff for cool people. Mm-hmm. And that I love because that is a that is a mission you can always, always achieve if you work hard enough. It's not we have to put out 10 books a year. Mm-hmm. It's not we have to have at least this many sales. It's we have to do, we have to make cool stuff for cool people to find. And that's always, always attainable and always growable. And I love that. But- Let's get back to the Seinfeld okay, thing. Okay. So like we were saying, this this uh, special was about his time as a solo storyteller. Mm-hmm. And he was up on stage learning how to get good at his craft and how to keep an audience absolutely riveted. Mm-hmm. And for someone so, so, so legendary and successful as Seinfeld, it's nice to hear that in the early years, he struggled just like everybody else. Yeah, He, he is that yeah. guy who's trying to write to get better. He was that guy. He is that guy still. Yeah. And I love that. And uh and it was it was also nice to hear that when he had nothing, when he had no money, when he was living in a fifteen by fifteen apartment, um, he thought it was a major step up from <laughs> when he used to sit on that store window. Yeah, yeah, the uh, little and you're right. That was great. Like this, this is where I used to have lunch, and like just sit there and think, do I want to do I want to knock down walls for a living, or do I want to go for it? And he decided to go for it. Yeah, but it was great to see at least him reminiscing about how happy he was in those times. It was a great hour of TV. I loved it, and it inspired me to work even harder. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end this episode. We both hope you enjoyed Story Smack episode 27. You can find Scott and I online as ever. Scott is at Scott Sigler on Twitter and Instagram. And his Facebook page is facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. And hey, what's the deal with Facebook? It's not a book of faces. It's not even a book. It's a website thing. Maybe they should call it Facewebs. I am at a real girl on Twitter. 
Twitter and at a.real.girl on Instagram. You can find this show at scottsigler.com slash storiesnack, and we would love to see your comments there. You can always find us on iTunes. Search for Scott Sigler Audiobooks and subscribe. You'll get a free audiobook episode every Sunday, and you'll get a big hit of Story Smack every week. So until next week, or next Story Smack, next anyway, Story Smack yeah. we will talk to you all real, real soon. soon. <laughs> <laughs>Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.